Uh, Our reading of Holy Scripture will come from the book of Mark. It's been, it's taken us a while to get here, but pray that it has been profitable. Mark chapter 16, beginning at verse 9, the reading of God's word. Now, when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. And they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. So then, the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere, while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. By his grace and mercy may it be preached for you. You may be seated. And as we come to consider this passage, let us pray for God's help. Almighty God, as we come to the end of Mark's Gospel, would you bless our reflections on these verses, but also on the whole of this book as we try to bring it to a a fitting end here in our services. And so would you help us to see how the message of these, these verses here point us to Christ risen and reigning, working through his church. And help us to cherish up that truth in our hearts all the more. Overcome the deficiencies of the preacher. They are many. Would you bless the reading and the preaching of your holy word to bring forth fruit in our hearts to serve you, to love you more and to serve you better. We ask it all in the wonderful name of Christ our Savior. Amen. Uh, A lot of moments in life feel like the end of a story of sorts. When we 
graduate high school or college, it seems like the culminating moment in so much that we've done when we get married. It seems like the big finish to our long season of of dating. If we accept a, a new job, it seems like the end of working our old job. And the thing is, in every one of those situations, that apparent end is also the beginning of something new. Graduation is really just stepping on to the next big thing, often, in many ways, merely the beginning of entering the real world, as, as we call it. Getting married certainly ends our singleness, but also begins our own new family. Accepting a new job, well, brings our old one to a close, but also begins our tenure in a new position. And so the sense of culmination and climax is usually wiped out pretty quickly by the the realization that even if there are these moments that seem like the end of something, things still roll on. And maybe they don't roll on as they did before, but they roll on nonetheless. And any sense of ending fades as we have to get involved in what must be done now. In Mark 16, 9-20, we find how the death and resurrection of Christ frames the end of Mark's gospel but turns out to be only the beginning of what Christ is doing as the king of the kingdom of God. Christ was at work on earth during his incarnation, but he continues to be at work on earth during his incarnation and ascension after his resurrection when he has gone to sit at the right hand of God the Father. Jesus is, the point is, that Jesus is still extending his kingdom. And as he did that directly while he was with his disciples on earth, now he is doing that work through the church, which is his kingdom on earth. Now last week, we raised um, the perhaps thorny issue that the end of Mark has its complications. The earliest manuscripts we have don't include the verses before us, verses 9 to 20, suggesting, at least, that they weren't original to the book that Mark composed. And even most conservative scholars and pastors, and I mean, including respected people that we know, R.C. Sproul, Alistair Begg, John MacArthur, have, have concluded that Mark stopped writing his gospel at verse 8. It's interesting, the, they sent out the new, or the link to the new issue of Ordained Servant yesterday, which is the OPC's magazine for office. So New Horizons is the magazine for everybody, and Ordained Servant is the magazine for officers. And there's a, a two-part uh, article coming from both sides of this issue about textual criticism and, and which version of the text we should uh, use. I'm hoping it wasn't because they heard my sermon last week. Um, I doubt it. <laughs> uh, there's, there's more to the story, though, than just that the earliest manuscripts don't include 
verses 9 to 20. In addition to that lack, well, verses 9 to 20, uh, as appear with an explanatory note in most of our English translations today, well, that ending isn't the only ending that's ever appeared in copies of Mark's gospel. There was the so-called shorter ending. And you can probably guess why it was called that. Uh, This alternative ending to Mark also appeared following verse 8, but was a briefer summary of Christ's resurrection appearances than what we have in verses 9 to 20. And further, there are, are numerous combinations of the various endings, as even the footnote in your your ESV mentions. On top of that, some of our best manuscripts that do have these verses uh, leave a gap. So they're usually written in two columns. These manuscripts are written in two columns, and they often leave a gap between verse 8 and 9 so that on the left-hand column, the rest of the column is blank, and they start again at the top of the second column. And that sort of space is really unusual in New Testament manuscripts and seems to indicate that the scribe wanted readers to understand that something unusual was going on. Even as early as the third century, the great Bible translator Jerome knew the complications involved in the ending of Mark. So what should we make of these verses? (laughs) What I mean, we have a few different things before us. As I said last week, and you can tell even now, I think Mark, Mark himself stopped writing at verse 8. Now, we should be clear, even as we say that, that we have not lost anything of Scripture. If Mark stopped under, under the inspiration of the Spirit, if Mark stopped writing his gospel at verse 8, uh, then we still have the ending that God wanted us to have. And so there's no challenges in that specific sense. So what, why then, the question is why, if that's where Mark ended, why would anyone add these verses? On the other hand, on the other hand, what if the majority of evangelical scholars are wrong? And Mark did write verses 9 to 20. It's possible. Scholars have been wrong about things in the past. Um, thank you. <laughs> oh, what? Well, those are issues that I think we need to consider as we come to the close of our studies in Mark's gospel. Mark's gospel set out to answer the twofold question, as we have seen over and over, of who Jesus is and what his kingdom is like. And I think that's still the question before us, whoever wrote these verses. Throughout this book, we have seen that Mark teaches us that Jesus is God the Son come in our nature for our redemption. His kingdom, the very kingdom of God, is therefore a saving kingdom. It brings the forgiveness of sin and the power of God to bear, even when everything in the world around God's people looks very different from what we would expect if God's kingdom, from what we would expect if God's kingdom were expanding and winning. So we need to wrap our heads around what to do with these verses by applying them to that main point of this gospel. And so our main point, 
for these verses, for the whole book, is that Christ's power is active even when we struggle to see it. Christ's power is active even when we struggle to see it. And today, I think, I think the best way to come at this um, is, is I have three questions for us. And so we're, we're going to answer three questions today. And so the, to outline them for you, right, the first one is, what if Christians added verses 9 to 20? What if Christians added verses 9 to 20? Second, what if Mark wrote verses 9 to 20? And lastly, what does God teach us either way? What does God teach us either way? So first, let's think together about what if Christians added verses 9 to 20? If Mark stopped writing at verse 8, then this book ends on a cliffhanger. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. If Mark stopped writing there, then we have already seen how he had the purpose to to force us to reflect on our own response to having heard the news of the resurrection as as we walk back into the, the challenges before us in life. Mark would have left us to consider whether when we are afraid... If we will believe the news of Christ's resurrection to trust the risen Lord as he reigns in the midst of the world that looks like he has not entirely won. Will we trust that news that we hear announced to us even if we don't put eyes on the reality of the risen Savior at least until we go home to be with him? Now, if that be the case, uh, I think, you know, with that, if that were Mark's rhetorical finish to prompt us to this greater reflection, if that be the case, I think we can still understand why even faithful Christians, certainly we should not think that there was anything, you know, untoward about motivations for composing this if it, if it were not original. We can understand why even faithful Christians would add a summary of post-resurrection events from the other Gospels, summarized from the other Gospels. Given that those manuscripts, including verses 9 to 20, often leave space between verses 8 and 9, it's, it's unlikely that the scribes composing or copying that section meant to fool anyone into thinking that these verses were Scripture, if they weren't inspired text. In Mark's original context, I mean, to frame this a little bit more widely, in Mark's original context, he could depend upon how Christian proclamation prioritized Christ's resurrection as a first 
point of importance for instruction. Right? So, he, in some ways, he could assume that everybody ought to know, if, if they have been in the church for a moment, ought to, to know Christians believe Jesus Christ rose from the grave. He, could, he also knew that Matthew's gospel recorded the post-resurrection event in an inspired text. And so he could shape his own ending to have appropriate rhetorical force for his purpose, given that there are other biblical books already available. And so there are contextual reasons why Mark would be fine with a cliffhanger ending. On the other hand, as Christians circulated the Gospels at times independently, uh, you know, you know we, we have everything nicely packaged uh, in one cover, and they did not always have that luxury. And so as, as we circulated the Gospels, sometimes independently of one another, <clears throat> well, we as the church would have been conscious that we have to affirm the resurrection without any room for skepticism about it. And in that regard... Verses 9 to 20 mainly digest other accounts from other Gospels. So verses 9 to 11, uh, for, for these verses, Matthew 28, 8 to 10, John 20, 11 to 19, show how Christ appeared to the women and gave them courage uh, to go report the resurrection to the disciples. For verses 12 to 14, Luke 24, 13 to 43, and, and John 20, 19 to 29, shows how Jesus appeared to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus and, and the others with a rebuke of their unbelief. For verses 15 and 16, I mean, Matthew 28, 16 to 20, famously records the Great Commission. 17 and 18, verse 17 and 18 might seem other than what Jesus said in other accounts, but throughout, throughout the book of Acts, the apostles cast out demons, speak in tongues, and lay hands on the sick. Paul was, Paul was bitten by a venomous serpent. And we should note, not as if he sought out the snake, but in the course of events, uh, this, this verse has been significantly abused in what people think they ought to do with snakes. Uh, and was unaffected. It does not seem as if Paul wanted that snake to bite him. So, now we, we don't have a biblical record of Christians drinking poison, but, but there is an account in the early church of, of a Christian being forced to drink poison and, and surviving, which might reinforce that verses 9 to 20 were a later Christian summary of Christ's addresses and his work after the resurrection. Now, in that, in that regard, if Mark didn't write verses 9 to 20, they represent the faithful Christian awareness that we have to assert the fact of the resurrection and tie it to Christ's commissioning of the church to carry his gospel into the world. It shows that even if a cliffhanger ending is fitting for a, a written work 
to prompt our reflection in the Christian life. The Christian life itself has no place for doubt, skepticism, or cliffhangers on this issue in an ultimate sense. Jesus Christ is risen, which is an all-encompassing truth that shapes how we live every day with, as even these passages show, live it with courage that we don't have to be silent and don't have to be afraid because Christ is risen and reigning. And Christians know that. And so that's how I think we make sense of this if Christians added it. What if Mark wrote, what if Mark himself wrote Verses 9 to 20. What if he composed this passage? If Mark himself, under the Spirit's inspiration, did keep writing through to the end of verse 20, then we see the basic Christian premise that the resurrection inspires hope for God's people. Verse 8 ended on a note of fear. But the risen Christ appeared to the fearful, given, giving them the courage they needed to pass on the message and live in light of the message that Christ is alive again. Mark then was making the point that the true end of the first act is Christ's resurrection. And he was also making clear that Christ's resurrection was the beginning of the next act. Mark was writing not just to record events, but to encourage believers who were, in fact, afraid. And so this ending about Christ's appearances to the disciples provides something pointedly relevant. In each case there, recorded in in these verses, Christ gives the needed and appropriate correction or or adjustment. When he meets the women, he gives them the courage that they need to to go and, and deliver the message entrusted to them. When he appeared to the disciples, he confronted them about their unbelief, motivating them to believe. To trust in Him. In each case, the result is that confirmation that Christ is risen commissioned them to bear witness to His exalted state. Each one of these encounters confirms Christ is risen so that people will act in light of it. The women were supposed to respond by, to this encounter with the risen Christ by telling the disciples. The two disciples were supposed to encounter, uh, respond to their encounter with the risen Christ by telling the other disciples. Climactically, the whole group of disciples was supposed to respond to their encounter with the risen Christ by going to tell the whole world about him and how he is risen. If, 
If Mark wrote verses 9 to 20, then his point was still, was still that we should live every day with courage, that we don't have to be silent and don't have to be afraid because Christ is risen and reigning. And that brings us to our final question. What does God teach us either way? <clears throat> We've sort of outlined how to make sense of <coughs> these verses, whichever way you, you want to assess the, the manuscript evidence. And I think regardless of that, we come to an answer here, the same answer. What does God teach us either way? Because we do want to remember, as we started, as we've reminded ourselves along the way, that Mark recorded Peter's account of Christ's earthly ministry as, as Peter was likely near the end of his life. And his purpose was to encourage believers as they faced increasing cultural pressure and the potential at least, of even real persecution. And the point of this section, regardless of who wrote it, is that Christ rose from the grave and left the church on earth in the wake of his ascension. That is, that is the truth. And it's the biblical truth, regardless of who composed these words. If later Christians added it, well, they added it because the church was present on earth to carry forward the message that Christ is risen and reigning. The church did that, perhaps in one way, by appending this summary of Jesus' resurrection appearances so that no question would linger if he was risen and glorified. They were, they were doing the job Jesus left them to do, proclaiming that Jesus is risen and that he is reigning and that he has left his people on earth to trust in him and to carry forth that message. If Mark himself wrote it, well then he was, he was detailing how Christ instituted his church to bear witness to himself as the risen and reigning Savior throughout this age until Jesus returns. And so Mark's point would have been to demonstrate the church's commission to be the people encouraged and motivated by our encounters with the risen Christ. And truly, those encounters still happen for us today through the means of grace as we gather and worship. And so like they were encouraged and motivated, so ought we be encouraged and motivated to live bravely for Jesus in the world, even when it may not appear that His kingdom is advancing in the ways that we might hope. And so, we see how that call to courage is really just a call to keep trusting Christ. Throughout 
throughout these encounters with Christ, the disciples, I mean, it's striking, isn't it? The disciples keep having trouble recognizing him. Now, if we're going to understand um, that, that little instance that Jesus appeared to the disciples in another form, as it says, in a, in a, in a good and an orthodox sense, it doesn't mean that Jesus changed his body around. Um, we know that, I mean, from other passages, right, that Jesus was able to point to the same wounds he had from the cross, to prove his identity to Thomas. And so the risen Christ is the same Christ with the same body, only glorified as was previously in the tomb. So this other form then had to do with how the disciples had a problem perceiving Christ correctly. They had this problem recognizing Jesus and his work and this problem trusting Jesus that he was at work. And that's often the same true for us, isn't it? Don't we struggle in just the same way? We wrestle to recognize Jesus at work in our own lives. We struggle to trust Him that He is at work. We get discouraged and afraid. And so we struggle to recognize or perhaps to admit that Christ is at work in and around us. And yet Mark's gospel summons us to remember that Jesus is God the Son, come to bring the kingdom of God as the force of salvation to all who trust in Him. And so we take heart in this gospel-length reminder that Christ is risen and reigning even when things seem otherwise. Christ always wins his victories in surprising ways, upending expectations. We've seen that throughout this book. And he won his ultimate victory on the cross by dying to forgive our sins. He demonstrated his triumph by bursting forth from the grave. And he continues to roll out his kingdom by the church as he makes his resurrection glory known to and through us in our call to proclaim Jesus as God the Son, risen and reigning. Let's pray. Father God, how thankful we are that appearances are not always a description of reality. Often they are, 
But in the case of your kingdom, you have often loved to do contrary to appearances, to, to win victory through perceived defeat, to grow your kingdom when it seems like it's not growing, to bring the sort of kingdom that even your people did not really expect. And so, we ask that as we come to the close of Mark's gospel, <clears throat> that we might hold tightly onto that twofold question Who is Jesus and what is his kingdom like? Well, Jesus is God the Son, risen and reigning as king over the kingdom of God. And his kingdom is a gospel kingdom. One that brings salvation. One that doesn't seem to be aimed at overturning the temporary governments of this age, of this world. But one that will be everlasting when our King returns to install it in full. Would you set our eyes upon this King and this Kingdom far beyond our studies in Mark's Gospel? that we might always treasure up being citizens of this kingdom because of who its king is, rejoicing that we belong to him for the forgiveness of sins and life everlasting. We pray it all in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen.